It's Tuesday, January the 25th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be your moderator today. That means I get to introduce the stars of our show, three of my colleagues we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, they are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Gentlemen, good to see you. And keeping in our tradition here at 2022, it seems we have a guest uh, who offers two things, a lot of wisdom and a very cool accent. Joining us today is Andrew Sullivan. Andrew is a proprietor of the Weekly Dish on Substack, which offers a little bit of everything for you, information consumers, column writing, polite disagreement, a reader's form. You can hear his decidedly British voice on his DishCast podcast. Andrew Sullivan, welcome to Goodfellows. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, Andrew, I think we owe it to our uh, audience, especially our loyal Neil Ferguson uh, viewers out there to get a little insight into uh, Brother Ferguson. You happen to go back to Oxford and university days with Neil. Can you give us a little window into what Neil Ferguson was like back then? Keeping in mind, Andrew, it's a family show. <laughs> it was great. It was great, wasn't it? Oh, oh, no, we, we had a good time. I mean, I think we were, we were sort of outsiders in a way because we were both sort of uh, kind of upstarts from the well he was more of a, more on the upper he's son of a doctor right so we, we wasn't exactly from from well i was the son of an insurance mid manager but anyway we weren't part of the public school network i.e the private school network and so we had a certain amount of uh disdain for our for boris etc <laughs> all those people um and we were also not super lefties and so we rather enjoyed that we did some rather obnoxious things while we were there, but there we go. That's what we do when you're at college. Neil, Luckily, there was no social media to capture our antics, or we would have been God. more than cancelled by now. But my recollection is, uh, just to take the trip down memory lane a little further, meeting Andrew, who was a year ahead of me, when I came to Oxford for interview, and uh, so you have to imagine a snow-covered Magdalen College in, I think, the winter of 1981. And I was from Glasgow, which meant that I was an outsider geographically. And Andrew was uh, from East Grinstead, which is close to London, but not really of it. And so as by the standards of old Etonians, outsiders, we gravitated towards one another. He was the funniest person I'd ever met. And he made me laugh a lot, mainly by saying outrageously conservative things in support of the then relatively new government of Margaret Thatcher. And I remember going back to Glasgow thinking, I have got to go there. If I don't, if I don't get in, it's going to be a complete disaster because I really, really want to spend more time with this man and his outrageous sense of humor. So it's lovely to be reunited after, God, it feels like half a century, it's a bit less, uh, even if it is on Zoom rather ignominiously. I have a question for you, Andrew. Um, okay. What went wrong? Because you were going to be prime minister, not Boris. And, I, and that was the plan. I mean, I hung out with you because obviously you were going to be prime minister. You became president of the union, which traditionally is at least gives you a shot at being prime minister. And I, you know, I put my money on you, spent, uh, uh, basically avoided your rivals, particularly Boris, whom I took an instant dislike to. But what went wrong? Why are you not prime minister? He's disastrous. You'd have been much better. He's missing the required haircut, obviously. 
have a different. It's a different. Uh, can we different... avoid going on about hair? Because HR is very sensitive on this issue. Well, you know, I think we all get to we come to terms with it after a while. Um, I went to America. That's what happened. I fell in love with a whole other country, and and life just took that direction. And but the other more sort of serious point. I mean, then life is sometimes like that. You know, just things happen, and and you move forward. The other thing is I just realized that there are aspects of politics that I'm just not good at. I'm just not good at lying. I, I don't regard that as a some sort of virtue. I'm just like really bad at it. And you have to have, let's not say lies, but you have to spend your life bullshitting in politics. And I also, I'm not a terribly social person, really. I'm sort of an introvert and having to schmooze all those people forever then I also, to be honest with you, I also realized I was gay so that God knows what the tabloids would do to me and, and God knows what the Tory party would make of me. And I wouldn't have been happy being put in the arts ministry forever, which is sort of what they would do normally. Um, or, or make you chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster or something where you just sit around and be a big poofter all day long. Um, so I, it was partly reason. Really. I just sort of think, well, those aren't my strengths. But I am fascinated by politics and I do want to sort of help change the world and be part of the debate. And it turned out that political journalism and writing, which became in America also, you know, rather political and some activism became involved in, you know, the movement uh, for marriage equality and so on. Uh, I thought that was a better way for me to be in politics than than elected politics. And um, uh, and I, I look at Boris and I, I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I don't know how many people have been following what's happening, but it's it's all it's such a Shakespearean tale, isn't it? I mean, so, so let, it, let me let me post this to you, Andrew. So here we are, twenty fifth day of the new year. Russian troops and tanks are on the Ukrainian border. They're going to go in God knows when, just looking for the first excuse to collect more real estate for Vladimir Putin. Europe is on the brink of a war, maybe on the brink of a lot of political and economic chaos as a result of this. And yet Britain's prime minister, as we speak, may soon be out of a job simply because he's been throwing garden parties, bring your own booze parties and basement blowouts at 10 Downing Street. Can you explain to the non-Oxford watchers on the show how much hot water Boris Johnson is in right now? Look. Boris Johnson has been a lot of hot water in many times of his life. I mean, it goes back from, you know, all the way through. So why does this one feel different? I'll tell you why it feels different, because the country has gone through a pretty terrible period of time. They've, it was really a lot stricter there than it that was here. People really were stuck in home. They could not see one another. They couldn't see their relatives. They couldn't have birthday parties or they, they banned Christmas one year, effectively. And this was all coming from Downing Street. Now, this same guy that was doing all this was having parties every day, apparently. It's, excuse me. So what you see is the sheer contempt that, that he has for the public at large. He really deeply internalized the idea that he lives by some rules and uh, everyone else lives by another set of rules. And that's been true for him from the very get-go. And this is, I, 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 I've been a, basically a supporter of him uh, because I think he, he, he did a couple of important and good things, but I, there's something so deep and revealing about this particular incident in as much as it cuts to the chase of his lack of integrity, his, his utter unconcern for others, his complete 
disregard for the interests of the party and the country. He, he's, 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 uh, I mean, one of the things that was interesting, I did a profile of him a few years ago. I went back to England, so talked to lots of his contemporaries. And I have fond memories of him because I was at Oxford with him. He was, he was fun. He was everything that he is now. And I was like, what's not to like, really? I don't care. Um, but this stuff is hypocrisy of such a profound way, feels such betrayal that I, th I think he should go. I think he should quit before he's pushed. So I, I want to take objection to uh, just about everything we've said here. <laughs> uh, from a U.S. point of view, California point of view, you know, our beloved governor, Gavin Newsom, was caught at the French Laundry, uh, sending his own kids to private school in person while everybody else's were at home. Uh, many of our politicians are <clears throat> blatantly ignoring the COVID rules they put on everyone else. I think Nancy Pelosi was caught doing some of the things. Uh, we have our own Donald Trump, who God knows has uh, <laughs> uh, has uh, done lots of things that get in the news. It, it, what's funny about this is that it is having traction. Um, it would seem like the least important thing going on. I mean, NHS wait times for cancer surgery would be the sort of thing you would think that people would be getting upset about. The, the interesting thing is that people are getting upset about this in the UK. But we've also, uh, the earlier conversation, the, the quality of a politician is not the quality of a thinker. You chose the right uh, career path <laughs> because uh, you know a politician knows everybody and has a great Rolodex, but politicians are good politicians and it's a noble calling to be able to form relationships, get people going, focus on a few things, get them done. Uh, but it is not the quality of a great essayist or a great commentator or a great, ever since Winston Churchill, maybe a great thinker. Um, it, it, it's a noble profession. So, and <clears throat> Boris, for all his shortcomings, um, uh, you know, U.S. presidents aren't the sharpest knives in the block uh, intellectually either. Um, so I wouldn't, I think, I think we're, we're starting wrong with what a politician should do and what we should expect of them. Uh, and, and then the, the curious thing about this is not so much Boris's behavior, but why this one suddenly triggered a response that, that has been absent with all of our own politicians doing exactly the same thing. You know, big parties where the, the, the little people are masked and the politicians are out unmasked. Well, I do think Andrew hit the nail on the head when he pointed out how much stricter the lockdowns were uh, in Britain. And I think that's something that our American audience probably doesn't fully appreciate. Uh, people were under house arrest for a very prolonged period of time. This was imposed, as Andrew says, by not just the government, but by Boris Johnson going on television and telling them why they had to be under house arrest on the basis of uh, the advice he was getting from the other Neil Ferguson and others, the epidemiologist at Imperial College London, who said we had to do lockdowns more or less until there were vaccines to avoid mass death. And I think what's really done for him is, is the hypocrisy. Now, Boris, as Andrew rightly says, has been through so many scrapes, any one of which would have destroyed a normal politician that you might wonder if he'll get out of this one too. But I think this is different from the previous scrapes because of all the sanctimonious things that he said in 2020 and 2021. You see, what Boris did during the height of the pandemic was to play the part of Churchill, the part he's always wanted to play, to characterize COVID as a war and to pose as a wartime leader, asking in Churchillian terms for sacrifice. 
it was the only time in his career when he seemed to be serious. Right, Andrew? Because every other time I've ever heard Boris Johnson speak, even when he was foreign secretary, he was always giving the impression that it was all a great joke. But during the pandemic, Boris decided to be Churchill for real. And that's what's done for him. Because now that it's clear he was privately partying, I mean, you called me party leader and I was leading the party. You just can't get away with it anymore. That That's, I think, the thing that does for him. Now, what one looks for in a politician is the ability to, to lead. And that ability uh, to lead, as John rightly says, comes not necessarily from profound intellectual uh, depths, but it does come from an ability uh, to connect. I have a theory about Boris. I want to try this out on you, Andrew, because you've known him in some ways. You, you knew him better at Oxford than I did because I just couldn't bear him. I My theory is that the closer you get to Boris Johnson, the more you see the utter self-centeredness and solipsism, the farther away you are, the more you're inclined to be taken in. And I give as evidence the attitudes of his siblings and uh, various wives. It's the people who've never met Boris, who kind of see the entertainer, who who, who are taken in. But the closer you get, the more you realise that it's it's an act. Now I think more and more people are having that revelation that, I remember having at Oxford, it's all a fraud. He's not really a jovial clown. Now that that's sunk in with clearly a very large number of voters, it must be game over. I think you put it, put it really well, Neil. Um, and, and I think there's a, this is not just a few incidents. Right? This is a structural policy. Within number 10, you could have parties anytime you wanted. Like you have up to the flat. I mean, do anything. And that is, the, and at the same time, and you could contrast that in the papers, for example, with the fact that the Queen, after the death of her own husband, had to sit alone without any comfort in the middle of, uh, of, of, of Westminster and Cathedral and, and uh, Abbey, sorry. And uh, the loneliness of this woman who did her duty and actually did what you do in a war, which is you show leadership from the top you sacrifice from the top, that it never occurred to Boris that he should take part of the sacrifice, that he should actually live according to his will. It didn't occur to him. That's a level of entitlement that truly sickens people, and it should sicken people. But we have, it's interesting, we have sacrimonious hypocrites all over the place in our leadership, and it's interesting that the party is what got people going. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm revving up for an HR uh, lecture here on the values of well, leadership. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty, a I narrative. Mean, uh, there's a yeah. there's a pleasing sounding narrative that you know not to be true. <laughs> and uh, go HR. Well, I well, I, I just I just want to kind of pull a little bit of this together. I mean, Andrew, I remember reading about your career decision earlier, and you kind of you alluded to it a little bit here. You said, you know, you you never wanted to be popular. Which I guess that disqualified you, you know, from being a politician. How how unexceptional is this behavior, right? I mean, I in the, in the military, of course, when the stakes are, are life and death. I mean, one of the one of the things leaders have to do, you know, is share the risk with their with their soldiers, you know, in in combat and in battle. And you know, the military kind of boils it down to kind of simple phrases, right? In the army, it's be no do, right? And and I remember, you know, climbing a mountain in in the, in the mountain phase of ranger school, and and uh, you know, a ranger instructor with crampons on his boots and his Kentucky accent saying, "How can you lead your man if you can't lead yourself?" 
you know, and, and I think these kind of fundamentals of leadership are, are absent, you know, among politicians because aren't these in general narcissistic personalities? I mean, aren't these people who who really want to be performative rather than formative? And of course, we 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 want politicians to not be that way. We want politicians who understand that they have to lead by example, that they that they have to share the risks and make sacrifices and and focus on you know on making a real difference and building a better future and so forth and as you've written really eloquently about is the importance of you know debate and compromise and to lead those debates and forge compromises but you know do you see a way out of this Andrew I mean how do we ref- how do we get better leadership out of the political class because I think the frustration that's being oriented on Boris Johnson and you've read about this as well I think this is reflective of a broader dissatisfaction with political elites and the hypocrisy. Yeah, but the thing about Boris is that he wasn't associated with that kind of elite. He was actually had a rather brilliant Tory ability to relate to ordinary people. That's why he won the election and and he he was able to present himself and particularly in in terms of his private life his love for partying his love for jokes he's he's being an all-round good guy you want to hang out with him have a beer with him all that stuff uh was part of his appeal and he ran his appeal against exactly those elites and that was particularly the case with brexit where he alone almost alone among the elites of the conservative party and much of britain actually uh uh made a decision to support brexit which is probably the most important decision he ever made in his life and it was a very critical decision for the brexit campaign without it i don't think they would have had brexit so so you can't run as a populist man of the people and then be exposed as completely contemptuous of them that's 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 the problem here and again it is it is uh people forgave him for many things and i think he should be forgiven but the other important thing to point out is that the person who has really assassinated him used to work for him Dominic Cummings has the goods, all of it. Now, when you are a prime minister and you rely upon such a person, and that person gives you your political direction, in fact, is critical to your success. And then when you finish that, and when you get through the election, and then you decide you'd rather listen to your girlfriend than him, and he quits with all the knowledge that he has of this person's, it's incredibly stupid, incredibly arrogant. Uh, he there was always two views of him. He, he could have been capable of greatness. And in some ways, maybe he will be. He is the person who, who took Britain out of the EU. He has recast and, and took advantage of the changing demographics and politics in the West. He's reformulated the Tory party as, as the old Tory coalition of the working classes and the, and the patriotic aristocracy in a way. But now it's all gone. Uh, and that's very dangerous, not just for him, but for the Conservative Party as a whole. And they have to find someone who can still appeal to those northern seats uh, while also not uh, betraying some of this elitist contempt for most people. A couple of ideas to throw in. One, you mentioned the Shakespearean quality of all this. I just can't decide if it's comedy or, or tragedy. I sense that ultimately there's something more of the comedy about, about the story than the authentic tragedy. Secondly, could it be that having delivered Brexit, he's done? That's it. He served his historical purpose and it was bound to end this way eventually. 
that that leaves me wondering a kind of third thing which relates to American politics. Somebody pointed out the other day that if if British politicians had the lifespan of American politicians, John Major would still be the Conservative leader and Gordon Brown would be the Labour leader. But we have very high turnover in British politics. Tory leaders have a very short average life. David Cameron was unusual for lasting as long as he did. But most leaders since Thatcher have had remarkably short careers. Uh, Maybe this is a good thing. I actually have to confess uh, a personal enthusiasm for a new prime minister. I'd be delighted if Rishi Sunak was in the job by Monday. Uh, But that's partly because I've developed this slightly impatient British attitude that, oh, next, next. And we don't have nearly enough of that in American politics where everybody's gaga. I mean, the basic problem in American politics, just shifting from the UK to the somewhat bigger stage of the US, is that the politicians are all senile. I mean, what, why not? Can't we just have British style turnover in the leadership of the American parties so that we can get rid of these people who should have retired years ago and currently, in their different ways, pose a threat to the Republic? Andrew. Well, yes. And, and I have to say that, that, well, the Tories are a terribly shameless, un, unsentimental party. They want to stay in power. They've done a pretty good job of it lately. They've gone through several prime ministers this time around. Um, they can sense if they're vulnerable and they will chop a leader off if they need to and get a new one. With Rishi Sunak, who many people in the United States are really not very aware of, if aware of at all, you can have the first non-white prime minister of the United Kingdom, of course a Tory, or you could have Liz Truss, possibly, a woman. The Tories are going to offer a non-white person and a woman to lead the right-wing party. This will be the, this will be the, it would be the third female leader of the Conservative Party. Um, It's a sort of interesting vision. Uh, And who better to advance a a stricter immigration policy than the son of immigrants, Rishi Sunak? Who who, who better uh, to represent a sort of optimistic and inclusive Britain than that person? Um, Let me me get you guys out of personalities for a moment, especially ones that none of our Americans, Americans are so insular have have ever heard of. They will hear Uh, of Rishi Sunak. They will see. I I hope so. Um, But there is, as a non-Brit, there seems to me that even though the Tories are in power, the same question for them is for the Republicans. Where the heck are we going now? Uh, For example, will Brexit mean Singapore on Thames, free markets, international uh, build build the uh, the vibrant commercial center on the borders of fortress Europe, or will it mean uh, protect the coal miners and steel workers of the north with uh, you know a, a slowly declining um, and and highly protected welfare state? That seems to be where are we going in immigration? You, you know, the UK needs high skill immigrants every bit as much as the US needs high skill immigrants. Again, are you are you going to build a wall and watch the decline, or is is the party of Margaret Thatcher? Uh, and and optimism, so forth. That thing just seems like that's, that's done a big already. question from the outside. Immigration is done. I mean, they have already shifted the immigration system to a point system, um, and uh, and and offered Hong Kong as an extraordinary possibility of yes. migration to United Kingdom. Now, the broader question of whether this means that it's going to be a low-regulated sort of Singapore offshore of Europe. That's hard to square with the shift of the Tories towards an understanding and concern for working class Brits who are patriotic, who didn't like the EU. Well, well you, you can be concerned for people and not support them with subsidies and protections. <laughs> I just well, I have to put in my, my vote for the wonders of the free market for people of, uh, of low, low means. But please well, go ahead. 
conservatism has never really in Britain had the longest tradition of that. Um, it's origins are in protectionism, actually. Exactly. The Conservative Party. The liberals Thatcher, used to be what we Thatcher, call classical liberals, exactly. Thatcher was an anomaly, um, probably an, an, an important anomaly at a point in British history where socialism had taken over everything. But nonetheless, the Tory position has historically been unify the country as best you can. Uh, you know, you don't want to hurt the middle classes, but you also have some sympathy for the poor. You want to put money in health services. They want, they want to actually invest in the north of England. There, I hate to break it to you, but there are almost no coal miners left at all. I, I know. There's also almost no steel industry left at all. So those days are gone. But the, the, but the, the way in which working class people have revolted against cultural elites, which has been brilliantly exploited by Boris, um, to give him one of the biggest majorities this cent the last cent this, this for a century in in the commons that's something that i don't think you can easily just abandon i think you're going to have to square it. you may, may may move back a little bit but the amount of tax increases and public spending that has already been committed to are so significant i don't think you could suddenly oh, so back. you ask um, americans uh, those americans what what you call working class i don't like to use class in america um, yes, they have been neglected. Yes, they feel they feel justly that the elites in America disparage them and look down on them tremendously. That's why Hillary Clinton, the one word deplorables, that's how Hillary Clinton lost. But that does not necessarily square with um, a, a state, you know, here, here's a check, go to the pub. Uh, in fact, you ask working class Americans what they want, and, and they are surprisingly uh, free market opportunistic uh, in, in, in their attitudes of what they want, not give us just a little bit more socialism, but, but do it without disdaining us. Providing money for the health service and creating a fast uh, rail, rail lines through the north of England isn't exactly handing people money and telling them to go to the pub. That's all I would say. That's a caricature. Um, I don't think they're full socialists, no, but I do think they have understood that the, the United Kingdom is one of the most dramatically unequal societies, that some, some part of the north of England does require extra concern to bring them into touch with the south of England, which is among the most prosperous and wealthiest part of Europe altogether. So I don't think that's a, I think it is a conservative idea that we should keep one nation together to to coin another uh, English Tory, uh, Disraeli, whose tradition is also very uh, much part of this. Um, so I don't think there's going to be a dramatic shift that way, but I do think that um, that you could find a slight middle way. Marshall cultural conservatism, have so, uh, minimize economic liberalism in the classic sense, but don't go full socialist or full state interventionist either. I want to suggest that there's a mean reverting quality to British politics, which is somewhat reassuring uh, to those of us who've become Americans and, and live in this republic. The mean reverting character is that the Labour Party, having experimented with a radical leftist leader and lost two elections, has basically gone back to something like the centre-left with your former schoolmate, uh, Keir Starmer as, as leader. Remember, Britain's a really small country and absolutely everybody knows one another. It's kind of like a village. So, so Andrew went to school uh, with the current Labour leader, who's I clearly- not school with him. We were literally seated next to each other for seven years, Starmer Sullivan. So I know Keir incredibly well from the old days. We used to fight 
every morning on the on the bus about politics. I was a Thatcherite. He was a I, I don't want to ruin his career, but he, I think he called himself a Euro communist or something. <laughs> like that. Uh, and it was huge fun. By the way, I don't recognize the current here at all. He is so much more restrained, so much more buttoned up. But I tell you, I think and, and he's he's had a really rough start. But there's something about the solidity, the boringness, yeah. the mastery of brief, the ability to marshal forensically questions that may not match Boris's extraordinary performative arts, and they haven't in the Commons, but they may be what people are gravitating towards in this kind of context right now. The mood might help Keir do better. Um, and I have to say this about I disagree with him about a lot of things. He's a decent person. He's a truly decent, fair-minded person. He's certainly, for example, been very clear in rooting out some of that anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and has stood up against that. Um, and look, he's more left-wing than I wa would want him to be, but he's a Labour Party leader. And I think that he, I do believe in both the United States and the United Kingdom, that it's important to have two functional parties really competing for the center. And I think, therefore, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if, if, a, if a reformist centrist Labour government were to, were to take power. I'm, I'm not sure whether that would happen. He's going to have to persuade a lot of people in England he's not being captured by the left and that those Corbynites are really under control. But I wouldn't, I, I'm much more, I'm, I, have, I, I thought he was going to be a passing phenomenon uh, and I'm not sure that that's the case anymore. So before Goodfellows becomes good chaps, <laughs> definitely change the subject. I think uh, Boris has gone soon. Rishi Sunak gets the job and then the Tories lose the next election. And it's just like politics in Britain has always been. Whereas one doesn't have the sense that American politics has mean reverting at all. And in your commentary going back four or five years, you have repeatedly sounded the alarm about the way in which the Republican Party under Trump has gone. Now you see more or as exercised by the underperformance of the Biden administration. So, I mean, it's- I would, I would go back even further to Andrew's writing about uh, the Obama administration and President Obama, which you were very high on, Andrew, when he first came into office, I think as many of us were, and and then and then ultimately came to see it as a disappointment. Whether you attribute that to overpromising and underdelivering, or or what you wrote about at one point as the as the Republican you know, jihad against them and so forth, but it seems like our our politics are swinging from extreme to extreme. Uh, one of your recommendations has been to hey, how about you know underpromising and overdelivering instead of the reverse, which I think is what we've seen the Democratic Party do under President Biden, right? They've, they've overpromised in, ter in terms of to their base with this build back better legislation and, and so forth, which is, is not going to go anywhere with getting rid of the filibuster and so forth. So I, just to, to tie into Neil's comment and to bring it back to this side of the Atlantic, you know, what, what do you see as the future for this sort of what we've seen as this the swing of the pendulum, right, between uh, Obama to Trump to Biden? You know, what, what can we do to get ourselves out of you know, what you've written about is, is this profound disappointment in political elites uh, and how it has contributed, I think, to this polarization that we, we've seen. One small point, I, I, I'm, I'm still a, a strong defender of the Obama administration. Um, I regard Obama as a sort of moderate Republican from the 1970s. Uh, who who actually had a, had much more in common with David Cameron than he did 
other people in his own party. If you listen Nelson, to Nelson the, Rockefeller, I think is what you're like, to. Yes, that kind of person, definitely waspy and brought golf back to the White House. <laughs> he's, he's the waspiest president since Eisenhower. Um, very aloof, uh, realistic, really, in his foreign policy, despite now he has two moods, of course. But I liked the, the Tory mood of Obama, which I think was there all along. I don't think he over-dramatically over-promised. I don't think he over-delivered either. But I thought he was perfectly okay. Um, uh, but if you were to read Obama's speeches today, he would be regarded as way outside the center of democratic political discussion. I mean, he, the, where, the, where the Democrats have moved leftward on questions of race, on question of culture, uh, on, on questions of economy, on a question of the, the constitution itself is so farther to the left that Obama was. Uh, and in fact, they're almost many of the people who are the strongest advocates of the current Democratic Party privately disdain Obama and regard him as a failure, uh, a tool of, the, of, the, of, of white supremacists, as it were. So what you have is a really radicalized Democratic Party, which is radicalized in response to the, what I would regard as the absolute sort of insanity of the current Republican Party. Um, and yes, that creates a huge problem. And, and, and the, the, the problem is also that in, those, in that context, which is exacerbated by social media, which is exacerbated by the, the nuts on both sides, the ability to actually formulate a consensus and to get a pragmatic compromise becomes harder and harder and harder. And so liberal democracy. Andrew, let's, harder and harder. Andrew let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about the man at the top of that radicalized party, Joe Biden, who years and years ago when he ran for president the first time, uh, ripped off Neil Kinnock and suggested that he was descended from coal miners. Um, before we get into Biden, I want your assessment on the Biden presidency, Andrew, but HR, why don't you give us a few minutes on sanctions? And John Cochran asked a pretty good question the other day. We're doing show notes. Uh, why aren't we doing sanctions proactively, number one? And then secondly, uh, to the two historians on this show, do sanctions ever work? Hey, well, I would just say that there, you know, there, there are limits to what you can achieve based on really what the offense is and how much you can get uh, you can get uh, agreement on not only sanctioning yourself, but uh, putting place in, in sanctions yourself, the United States, but also getting others to come along with you so that, such that the sanctions are effective. And to not to not impose sanctions what is what's in a way that many might view as capricious or um or, or premature uh because what that will do is incentivize people to figure out a way to get around them right and to uh and to undermine obviously the uh you know the dollar is the reserve currency for example to develop alternative uh alternative ways of of, of transaction of, of conducting transactions in a way that diminishes our influence over time and then of course Sanctions are only effective, I would say, when they are integrated with other elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners. Uh, standing alone, uh, they 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 don't they aren't effective. Uh, uh, but when they're combined with diplomacy, so that they're multilateral, they can be effective. When they're effective, uh, when they're when they're combined with uh, with law enforcement mechanisms, when they're sustained over time, because you you need to do a lot to maintain sanctions. Uh, if they're used to incentivize uh, shifts in behavior. Uh, you have to also be able to lift them. You know, once the behavior is altered and so forth. So it's not it's not just a fire and forget. Hey, here's the next round of sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act or something. You have to be able to to place it in context of an overall integrated policy. In Russia, you know, I I think we have imposed costs on on, on Russia with with sanctions that we have imposed, and and certainly on Putin's inner circle. What effect has that had? 
I mean, I don't think Putin feels very secure. I think this is one of the reasons he's acting out internationally. You know, there are more political prisoners in Russia today than there were at, at the height of the Cold War in the Soviet Union. And, and so you know, it does, is there a point at which those who are, you know, who have been punished by, you know, Vladimir Putin's aggression and behavior say, hey, come on, enough is enough. You know, and will that, will that generate enough pressure on him uh, to deter uh, his actions that, that he's about to undertake, apparently, these uh, the Ukraine, uh, or or to, to, to ratchet down his, his aggression against, uh, against us and Europe and others? So, you know, to answer your question, you know, it, sanctions are, can be effective if combined with other elements of, of power and efforts of like-minded partners. And the reason we haven't, we haven't done it all, you know, blocking access to the dollar economy, for example, export restrictions... Uh, that, that would that would cripple the, the the Russian economy even further is because there wasn't enough consensus internally, you know, or among partners to be able to do that effectively. Mm-hmm. Neil Boris sent anti-tech weapons to Ukraine. Should the U.S. be doing the same? Well, the U.S. should have been uh, beefing up Ukraine's far power throughout the past year, but actually, the Biden administration slowed down the military aid uh, to Ukraine. In, in, I believe, the misguided uh, belief that to send more weapons to Ukraine would antagonize Russia. We, we've discussed this on the show before. I think Putin uh, has seen a tremendous opportunity to take uh, military action against Ukraine. Uh, the constellation is uh, nicely aligned for him because the Europeans are at his mercy with respect to natural gas. The Biden administration doesn't look terribly interested in getting in any kind of of war with Jake Solomon as national security advisor. And in in the wake of the the evacuation of Kabul, the U.S. doesn't look uh, like it's uh, ready for a fight. And so sanctions is all that we've really got to offer if the Russians make a further military incursion into Ukraine. Two things to remember, bringing this back to Biden. He was vice president when sanctions were tried in 2014. I'm less of an admirer of Obama than than Andrew. I think Obama's second term was a disaster. One of the ways it was disastrous was that Obama persuaded himself he didn't really need any advice on Russia from anybody, not even George Kennan, because that was the 1980s calling and wanting its foreign policy back. And uh, before you knew it, Putin had invaded Ukraine, annexed Crimea, and the administration responded with dot, dot, dot sanctions. Now, sanctions I, would, I, would achieved... this, I call this, Neil, a foreign policy of resignation, I think is what it was under the Obama administration. Well, it certainly proved that sanctions won't get you very far with Putin. And we've been imposing sanctions on the Russians through Congress as well, with practically no results since 2014. If you look back on the history of US sanctions, when they've been applied most aggressively, say against Iran, or against Cuba, they've achieved nothing. Occasionally in American history, they've had a disastrous result, as happened when sanctions were used against Japan, ultimately to the extent that the Japanese decided on war, because the alternative was essentially to be choked economically by the United States. So it's amazing to me that American policymakers still think they're going to get anywhere with this strategy, whereas ultimately, we now are in a situation where it's up to Putin whether he goes to war. And we know that when he does, or if he does, we'll respond with sanctions and it won't change a damned thing. And that seems to me a a sad indictment of how little Biden and his team have learned from their last experiences in government. I would just add, I love it when we talk about um, policies and not presidential personalities, which I think is uh, a deeper thing for us to analyze. 
The, the sanctions question, exactly. I find it hard to think of a case where it certainly hurt people, as HR pointed out, but I think it, find it hard to think of a case where it changed behavior. I think one of the lessons of, of military history is, is countries are able to absorb an enormous amount of damage rather than give in. I guess the South Africa is a, a case where it won, but uh, sanctions had an effect. But that was a case of a, a, a regime that understood it was morally corrupt and had to do something about it, which is not the case, certainly, uh, with Mr. Putin. Uh, I also, my, my question on it was, I'm still outraged that we provided a territorial, a guarantee of territorial integrity to Ukraine if they gave up their nuclear weapons. Putin invaded and annexed. Now, <laughs> George Bush Sr., when, when Saddam Hussein invaded and annexed uh, Kuwait, he had a, a different response, then we'll throw some sanctions at you. Why is... Why are there sanctions left? I, I would, you know, invading and annexing territories isn't a, oh, well, we'll pat you on the head with a little bit of light sanctions. Uh, apparently we've given in. And so part, part of my worry is that we, first of all, no one believes what we say any, anyway, uh, because we'll give in ex post if it's uh, to our, um, and so what seems to be a danger is, is bluffing. Uh, I think, in fact, um, the, the danger right now is that the, the push to Biden to be tough and to, to make it look costly for the, for the Russians is going to be simply to make one more set of line in the sand promises that then we will not keep ex post. Uh, we'll, we'll throw some sanctions on for a while. Everybody knows six months to a year it's gone. And that's it. Putin's got what he wants. Yeah, what he wants is to swallow Crimea. Uh, I think the soldiers are there not to, and, and the sort of opinion I'm reading, which makes sense to me, the soldiers are there not to prepare for World War I-style invasion. The soldiers are there to, to give a threat to the rest of us that he's going to meddle around and stir up trouble in Ukraine, try and steer its domestic politics his way, uh, and that we had better not interfere with force because then he's got his reserves sitting there. And in that sense, he's won. We are negotiating the terms of our surrender. We're basically, do we have to say in public that Ukraine never joins NATO, or can we simply give that a wink, wink, and a nudge, 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 nudge to him? So the danger is is for, is threatening sanctions that we won't, they, they don't seem to work, as, as Neil pointed out. They don't change behavior of, of regimes that are fundamentally committed to something else, like the, uh, like the Cubans, like the Venezuelans, like the North Koreans, like the Iranians. Uh, that we and that it will be a passing thing that will everybody knows six months later they're gone and the larger danger is making threats once again empty threats uh, that that when the time comes we won't you know the, there's many more lines in the sand. Well, let me ask Andrew a question, please. It seems like there's often a disconnect between what the professional commentators say about presidents and foreign policy and what voters think. The, Professional commentators were terribly exercised by the fall of Kabul. Uh, the news cycle moved on, and I suspect Afghanistan is about number 29 on the list of priorities for most voters. So when you look at Biden's situation and assess the administration after a year, I don't know how important the foreign policy flubs actually are, and you're probably much better able to answer that question than, than I would be. I'm far too close to the, to the blob, the foreign policy blob. Well, the discussion that I've, that you've all been having, which has been really interesting, um, begs, well, it sort of leads me to ask a simple question. Well, what would you want us to do? Like, what are, what would, should Biden do? Launch a war? Send massive troops to Ukraine? The whole concept that the United States should be committed uh, to defending Ukraine against Russia seems to me completely bonkers. And, and we've let ourselves get 
caught in that trap. And so we're essentially, you know, at Putin's uh, whims, it seems to me. And I, I think a little honesty about that would be helpful. Um, the one thing I would do is start building nuclear power plants in Germany, which might actually help prevent the terrible dependence they have on Russian gas. That it is some sort of weird combination of, of bad environmental policy in Germany actually enabling Russian aggression and influence. Um, that's one of Merkel's legacies that really, I think, will be rightly excoriated. Um, but yeah, and I do not believe that there would be in any American public support for serious warfare in Ukrainian in Ukraine against against Russia. I think I, I think I think it's important though to place what are this discussion in context of what does Vladimir Putin really want and how does that relate, as you're saying, Andrew, to our vital interests. Do we think that that Putin is satisfied uh, with being able to re, to extend Russian influence over all of Ukraine, or do you think he has designs beyond that? And I think. What his designs are essentially is to reestablish Russian influence over all the former territories of the Soviet Union and beyond that, right, into the into the former Warsaw Pact to break Europe apart in terms of its, its any degree of political unity uh, that remains to destroy NATO and to do so as as really a step toward his ultimate goal, which is restoring Russia to national greatness and doing so in a way where he is allied increasingly with the Chinese Communist Party. And I think from a geostrategic, geoeconomic perspective, you know, what we have is the emergence of what Spikeman and Mackinder feared, uh, which is the, the world island of the Eurasian landmass dominated by hostile powers. And, and so, I mean, if you put it in that broad context, of course, I don't think that an appropriate decision would be, you know, to send NATO and US forces directly into, into Ukraine. But I, I think it would have been wholly appropriate much earlier to help the Ukrainians who do have agency over the situation, bolster their own defensive capabilities, and then also to augment to our own deterrence uh, uh, military capabilities in, in places like Bulgaria and Romania and the Black Sea region generally, because I think it's quite clear that Russia wants to turn the Black Sea into a, into a, a Russian lake and wants to essentially send the message, you know, to to countries in the region, who's your daddy? You know, do you really think uh, that that NATO can provide the kind of security architecture that can insulate you from the coercive power of the Kremlin? And and so I I think that we have to place it really what we do in broader context of what uh, what what Putin and the Kremlin wants to achieve, relate that to our vital interests. Establish goals and objectives. Usually, I mean, mainly associated with dismantling his ability to pursue this this playbook of his. Of I think I think of it as the four D's, right? Disruption, whether it's cyber attacks, whether it's annexation of Crimea, invasion of uh, of Eastern Donbass, uh, and uh, or or if it's a, or disinformation, a sustained campaign of of of, uh, of of cyber enabled information warfare associated with a broader campaign of political subversion, his campaigns of, of just denial, right? Denying even his most aggressive and brazen and obvious acts. And then finally, as you alluded to, as dependence, right? Dependence on Russia for energy supplies in particular. And, and I think you're quite right to say, hey, the best way to get at this now is building nuclear power plants in, 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 in Germany. How about U.S. LNG and other LNG exports uh, to, to, you know, to, to reduce the reliance in the near term? So I, I think that what we need is a holistic approach to Russian aggression and Putin's playbook. And, and, and I, I don't think there's a stark choice between 
you know, deploying U.S. forces to Ukraine, you know, or or doing nothing and saying, hey, you know what, what he's doing in Ukraine is okay. And I, I'm not that you're suggesting that, but I think what we need is a sensible approach based on a prioritization of our interests. From a domestic political point of view, it just seems to me really interesting that Republicans are quite divided on this issue. On the one hand, you've got Mike Pompeo saying we were much tougher than Biden. We actually gave the Ukrainians some serious firepower. On the other, you've got Tucker Carlson, who's basically ready to hand Ukraine back uh, to Russia. And on and, and that sense, I think it's, it's actually, of, from a domestic political point of view, kind of a nothing burger. Because if the Republicans can't decide if they're for or against Ukraine, then I don't think Biden really needs to worry too much. But wait, 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 uh, I, 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 I want to turn on this one because I think Andrew <coughs> Andrew asked such a powerful question uh, that I, I think it, it deserves us to stop and think. Uh, too many people in the U.S. jump to, oh, we got to defend the Ukrainians, and you're exactly right. Wait a minute, we're not going to find Ukraine. I do think uh, we should avoid making obvious mistakes. So, taking things off the table, saying things that you what saying out loud things you won't do. Strategic ambiguity has some advantages in a negotiation like this. Making threats that we will not keep is equally dangerous uh, because either they know we won't keep them or then you're revealed for who you are once you do keep them. Uh, So avoiding big mistakes, number one. But uh, number two, I think um, contemplating, I I think sanctions, um, not just sanctions, but a, a real plan. Look, you invade and swallow Ukraine. We are going to cut off from Russia. Russia needs us as much as we need them. Yes, build nukes in in, uh, in Germany, build nukes in the US, uh, allow uh, one of the Biden administration's first thing it did is it stopped drilling and is and uh, no drilling, no fracking on federal lands. Well, you know, the liquid natural gas ha- that we're going to export, thanks HR, has to come from somewhere. Uh, it can come from us. But we are going to construct a Russia-free uh, economy in the, uh, in the West is that that is something that we could do without uh, shedding blood. And um, we're gonna bring down Putin. Uh, There's a lot of offensive cyber. There's a lot of uh, Russian money stashed offshore. And there's a lot I gather our intelligence agencies have on Putin that they, uh, now this is obviously not something that you would say in public, uh, but uh, that's certainly something that, you know, we could agree to do in person. I think there's there's things one could do if one didn't want them invading and taking over and, and we're not ready to go to war over it. Why, why would it be impossible for the United States to say, you know, it was a mistake. We should not have promised the possibility of NATO for Ukraine. NATO in Ukraine? At what point does that make any sense at all? Um, and I think one also has to ask, why wouldn't any Russian leader seek to increase his sphere of influence in his next door yard. I mean, of course he's going to do that. We shouldn't regard that as some sort of crazy, uh, bizarre, irrational act from a Russian leader. But hang Um, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What the Russians have said is that they want NATO to cease even military exercises in the member states of NATO that joined after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, Good luck with the argument you just made in Estonia, Lithuania, in Latvia. Good luck trying to make this Poland, argument Poland, in Poland with the Warsaw Pact countries, because the Russians are doing much, much more here than trying to undermine the integrity of Ukraine as an independent democracy. What they're really trying to do is to break up NATO and reverse enlargement altogether. Now, 
given the history of uh, what those countries experienced, not just after 1945, but let's go all the way back to the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. No, 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 we can't start negotiating about whether enlargement was right or not, or whether the new members are going to be kind of semi-members without actually any military capability. Remember, Andrew, the Russians made demands that were clearly designed to be rejected. They knew they were never going to be accepted. This whole diplomatic uh, charade is just a prelude to a military action. And, and, and but, Andrew, is it, isn't honestly, what Russia's... Isn't, is, doesn't, isn't what Russia... Wait, wait. Andrew, I'm sorry. I, I, want to, I, want to, I just wanted to... I want to get back to your question. You said, okay, how the hell does it make sense, right? Look what's happening now. Is it, but to what degree is what's happening now a justification for, for for citizens of a country to have at least the, the volition, right, to to be able to ask for NATO membership. I mean, it seems like what 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 Putin is doing in Ukraine is an argument for NATO. But sorry, Andrew, I want you to respond to all this. You sparked a great discussion. I have no idea what Ukraine has to do with the North Atlantic. I honestly don't. The mission creep of this is insane. Uh, and and the ambiguity over that with Ukraine was obviously overreach by us and the attempt after the after the cold war to punish russia uh uh in a way that that, that would humiliate russia seems to me to have been an act of hubris by the west that was foolish in the long term um i don't think we should compromise at all on troop movements in poland i don't think the poles are going to suddenly surrender to russia i don't think the poles are going to suddenly ally with russia i think more worries about the germans than the poles um, and yes, those of whom we have given commitments, we should continue to give commitments, but not this. This is this is this was a this was a we haven't even committed to NATO for for Ukraine. Well, and also, well, Ukraine and Russia true. have a completely different relationship than Poland and Russia. Right. Ukraine was long, long. I mean, half the people there speak. It has deep connections with Russia. It's always had that kind of connection with Russia. To treat it the same way we treat Poland seems to me to be very foolish and contemptuous towards Russian, Russian goals. This um, is dangerous talk, in my view, because ultimately what's very clear is that uh, Ukrainians uh, wanted to join the European Union and wanted to be in NATO for years. And what happened was that uh, the Europeans and uh, both uh, as EU members and as NATO members said, uh, actually, no, uh, at least not yet, at least not for a very long time. And that left Ukraine in this limbo where there was a notion that one day they would be able to join these organizations, but just just never. And, and that's, I think, the, the heart of the matter. You went, you made a comment about Germany earlier. The terrible truth is that I'm not sure the Germans really want Ukraine to be part of either NATO or the EU. And that's created a, an opportunity for Putin but Ukra Ukrainians want democracy and they definitely want westward orientation. They want as far as possible to be like Poland. There is very little appetite for being absorbed back into uh, a quasi-Soviet Union by Putin. And I think if we simply allow that to happen, it will be a terrible crime. It will be a crime against uh, the, the Ukrainians who risked their lives and lost their lives in some cases for democracy and independence. So I can't agree with what you're saying, Andrew. I think actually it's quite dangerous to start legitimizing what Putin's trying to achieve here.
very dangerous. And, and I would just question, Andrew, I would just question the narrative commitments about this, that we have no intention of fulfilling, yes. and to make arguments about this that we have no intention and ability to back up and do I not disagree. I disagree strongly. Support for it. No, those All you need to do Neil. to deter Putin is forget sanctions. You have to make sure that the cost of any further incursion into Ukraine will be very high in terms of Russian servicemen's lives. That's why it's good that the UK has actually supplied anti-tank weapons. It's good that there is some effort being made to bolster Ukraine's defenses. On its own, Ukraine cannot withstand a Russian invasion. That is clear. They're completely But we should uh, go to war with Russia. But we can, we, we can clearly provide them with, with, Russia? with firepower. We can clearly provide them with military support without deploying U.S. troops. That, that, that's never been part of it, the it is, it is not an easy military problem for the Russians already. And I do think that, I mean, the, the support for Ukraine's ability to defend itself, I think, is, is the way to go. And I think that's where we do have agency in a way that's appropriate and not in any way you know, sort of escalatory or anything like that. You know, the uh, you know, when you look at when you look at the map, you don't want to make the mistake that Napoleon made and not look at the scale on the map when he invaded Russia, right? Or the or Hitler made. I mean, Ukraine is a vast it's 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 a it's a vast territory. Uh, there there are some some very significant you know tactical difficulties associated with very a very narrow window for a large scale ground invasion. The, the Ukrainians have. They have undertaken a broad range of reforms and improved their capabilities significantly. And I would say, Andrew, that you know this this argument, which is, is really the Kremlin argument that hey, they all just want to be Russian anyway. You know, I don't think that was ever the case. But I think what what Putin, what Putin has done is he has he has done more than anyone else to bolster Ukrainian nationalism and and to strengthen Ukrainian national identity uh, in, in the range of actions he's taken in a military conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Is there any possibility Ukraine could prevail? Uh, there, 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 Russia, is a, there is a possibility to impose costs yeah. far beyond what the Kremlin has factored in. You would go to war with Russia? I'm sorry? Would we go to war with Russia? No, I'm talking about Ukra the Ukrainians with the Ukrainians. capabilities they have already. The Afghanis uh, made life pretty terrible for the Russians till the Russian pulled out. I, I just want us to remember there was a little bit of history here I want to correct. After the Cold War, the we were thinking, everyone was thinking Russia would transition to a democracy, uh, sort of on the on Poland. The idea that Russia would become a belligerent uh, kleptocracy, oligarchy, whatever you want to call it, was not in the plan. So, in fact, we were talking about, hey, well, Russia can be a member of NATO, too, in one of these so days. I didn't believe that bullshit. <laughs> the idea of Russia was to become a Western democracy after the Soviet Union struck me as absolutely bonkers. Of course it wasn't. It never has been. It never will, probably never will be. Um, I, I, I just- Which was an argument for NATO enlargement. That was the whole rationale behind it, that you could not count on Russia to go down the route of liberalization, democratization, which is why I think uh, enlargement was the right strategy. Okay, we're running out of we're running out of time here, fellas. So, Andrew, I want to throw one last question at you. That's a bit of an awkward segue. We're going to go back domestic again, but here's what you wrote after the 2018 midterm election in New York Magazine, and I quote: uh -oh. we, learned, "We learned that the American public as a whole has reacted to the first two years of an unfit, delusional, mendacious, malevolent, incompetent, authoritarian as president with relative equanimity." If you're looking ahead to November 2022, Andrew, would you write something similar about Joe Biden? No. There's no comparison between someone who is clinically bonkers, who has attacked, att attempted a, a coup of some sort, who 
who, who, who despises the Constitution of the United States, that never recognized a single uh, legal boundary on his own power, that demonizes his political opponents, that, is, that has turned the Republican Party into a cult. There is no comparison whatsoever. This, Trump is sui generis in the history of the United States. Okay, so and, looking, looking to November, what, what is coming Joe Biden's way? He's going to get wiped out. <laughs> no question about it. Um, and the reason he's going to get wiped out is, is a combination of things. But essentially, in my view, it is because his own party has moved so far to the left of public opinion. And, and that's beginning to become and enter the actual lives of people with their children in schools, with what they're being made to do in their workplaces. Um, and seems, and as well as high inflation, as well as his screwing up the COVID messaging, he is, he's going to be overwhelmed by a Republican House and Senate. Then the question is simply going to be, will the Republican Party uh, continue to be an authoritarian cult, or will it be able to offer a sane, someone mentally not unwell, clearly deranged, clearly deranged person, uh, to be the possible presidential candidate? And I'll be very happy if they could manage to do that. But if Trump is what it is, then, then, I, will, then I will vote for whoever is not Trump. Okay. Uh, they're simply, we cannot allow such a figure with such views and such instability and such and, and proven capacity to attempt to violate the constitution at its core ever back into democratic politics. And I might also add this, that insofar as the Republican Party still entertains him as their leader, it is not fit for any kind of role in any government anywhere. And it's simply as simple as that. Tell us how you really feel, Andrew. Seriously, um, can no, I, I do? I feel I, that way. No, can I can I ask a question? Stepping aside uh, from, as it were, activist journalists and and being a kind of dispassionate observer, you, your calls in American elections have been consistently good yes. ever since you moved here. It's one of the most impressive things about your transatlantic transplant. If you just set aside your own passionate hostility to Trump. What probability do you give it that he can, in fact, get reelected? A lot depends on what happens, obviously, but I would say a, a 40% chance. Right. Something like that. Um, uh, because people hate the left so much, they might support him anyway. Mm -hmm. um, because they're so pissed off with what's going on, they may support him anyway. Um, but at the same time, I think there's enough of a segment of Republican voters who just realize we can't go through all that again. And we're not going to go through that ordeal again. If they have a potential like DeSantis or someone who offers a more reasoned or, you know, some version of Yunkin, they will also understand that they could truly triumph. I mean, they have been given this opportunity, which only Trump can blow for them at this point, I think. And I, I just hope that when, if they win back the House and Senate, they will get enough institution without Trump essentially being their leader, as it were, although he'll try and do that. There may come a moment where they see their real opportunity and, and, and dump him um, and have someone who more capable of doing that, I think is true. But, you know, and I have, I'm basically gotten basically everyone right. I, I, uh, but uh, obviously things can happen and, and history is fickle and events 
we may not have either Biden or Trump alive next time around. It's perfectly actuarially possible. Um, and, uh, uh, but I also think that Biden is, cannot possibly run for re-election. Democrats have a real problem there. Let's, let's leave it on that note. Andrew Sullivan, thank you for coming on today. So thank you for sharing your brilliant insights and a very special thank you for a window into Neil Ferguson's university days. On <laughs> There's much more we can mine in another time. That's it for this installment of Goodfellows, but fear not, we'll be back soon with a new show. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our guest today, Andrew Sullivan. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.